Well, as summer is coming to an end, maybe not from an equinox standpoint, but it's Labor Day tomorrow, so for me, summer is over, and now we move into the fall, except in our preaching calendar, because we begin our fall series two weeks from now. Uh, we have uh, this weekend, we have next week. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 7. Uh, summertime in Psalms is always a wonderful time, although having said that, we won't be in the Psalms next week. Uh, for those who are curious, as we come to the Explorer God uh, in, the, in the coming weeks, beginning on September 16th, uh, we will be focusing our fall series on seven key questions. We'll begin on the 16th with the question, does life have a purpose? Uh, the week after that, uh, Camper will uh, be answering the question for us, is, uh, is there a God? And then the week after, Ben will be dealing with the question of suffering. For those of you who want some previews, the answers to the question are, is, does life have a purpose? Yes. Uh, Camper will point out, yes, there is a God. And then the question for, that Ben will be dealing with, why is there suffering? The answer is because there's evil. If you want to know why there's evil, that's not his assignment. Uh, that's a whole other sermon. So, uh, but uh, um, but uh, we do hope that you'll join us and encourage you to invite your unchurched friends to participate, whether with us or any of the churches that are going to be looking uh, at these questions, hopefully encouraging them to go to the ones who will answer these questions with a firm view of God speaking to us through his word. Uh, but this is a, but we also invite you to be praying uh, that uh, God's answers to these common questions uh, would begin to permeate throughout our community. But for this morning, our focus is on Psalm 7. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is any wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. Oh, righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. In the word of our God, let's pray. Father, as we come, we thank you for your word and for the man, David, who gave it to us. 
but more we thank you for your spirit who inspired him, recorded it for us, and speaks to us even today. Lord, by your spirit, speak to us that we would be informed in mind and shaped in heart, that we would both be confronted and comforted by your truth with the promise that your word is not only at work, but it is an expression of your being. And so in your word, as we rest in it, we are able to rest in you. Enable us, shape us, be glorified in us, we pray, through the Christ, our King. Amen. 1993 was a monumental year for many. Or at least it was a liberating year for many people, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Americans. 1993 was the year when Merriam-Webster decided that they would take the leap and list ain't as an actual word in the dictionary. And throughout the country, there were people who used phrases in the word ain't in their conversations who were now vindicated, vindicated despite what their English teachers had told them. Anyone telling them that ain't ain't a word, they had proof they could bring up Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and no doubt English teachers were convinced of the downfall of our culture as evidenced by Merriam-Webster's action. Now, I don't know if it was in 1993 or not, but it was sometime soon after that that I, I became conscious of the fluidity of our language and the changing nature of words that are in our culture. I, I've always known that there are words that are archaic and there are words that I, I learned, but I just assumed somehow they were always there. But it was at that time that I became aware that we actually have a process and that though people who do such things, they, they vote certain words off the island every year and then they bring new ones on that they think that are particularly worthy. And it's not uh, something that is uncommon either. Uh, having uh, been curious about that, I, I read an article this past week uh, from The Guardian, February 4th, 2016, that was titled, How New Words Are Born. And the author, a man named Andy Bodel, writes this. As dictionary publishers never tire of reminding us, our language is growing. Not content with the million or so words already uh, that we have at our disposal, English speakers are adding new ones at the rate of around 1,000 per year. In fact, according to Global Language Monitor, around 5,400 new words are, credited, are created every year. It's only the 1,000 or so deemed to be sufficiently widespread in widespread use that, makes it, that, that make it into print. Who invents these words and how? What rules govern their formation? And what determines whether they catch on? And these are questions that nag at me and keep me up at night, um, as I'm sure they do for you. Uh, but he's pointing out a very real thing that we are aware of. Language changes over time. And sometimes it seems trivial. And other times there is probably a significance to it. I was curious, and so doing a quick word search, here are some of the words that have come into our vernacular in the past couple of years. In fact, in 2018 alone, the word mansplaining has come, is now made it into the dictionary. For those of you who need to know what that means, here is the dictionary definition of mansplaining. A man explaining something to someone, typically a woman, in a manner regarded as condescending or patronizing. I'm going to refrain from asking if you understand because I'll be accused of mansplaining here, but um, <laughs> at least by half of the people in the room. Here's another one, screenager. This is a word that I guess just is begging to come into our, our, uh, our, our dictionaries. A person in their teens or 20s 
who has an aptitude for computers and spends much of their time on the internet. Who knew that there was such a word for that? But of all the ones that we have, the one that caught my attention the most that is actually in the dictionary, came in, I believe, in 2016, is the word whatevs. And I began thinking, who are these scholars <laughs> that are sat around debating and figuring, we really need something to shorten the word for whatever that we have in our culture. Whatever is kind of archaic. We need to shorten that, and we need a new one. And so, boom, in the dictionary, a legal, legit word, whatevs, is actually legitimate. Now, these words are certainly descriptive, and, or, or we, we hear them. And whether we had them in our dictionaries or not, I'm not sure our culture would be a whole lot different. But there are some other words that I think that reflect something significantly more that have come into our vernacular as well. Apparently, in 2006, those who do such things decided that there was a, a word of the year, which, again, was relative news to me. I mean, I know Hollywood keeps on putting on things, you know, Oscar programs, and apparently they have a word of the year, most valuable word, or whatever it is that comes out each year. But in 2006, it was a word that was, according to CBS News, was coined by uh, the, uh, um, lost, my, lost my place here, um, was, was coined by the comedian Stephen Colbert. And the word is truthiness, which scholars decided, well, that certainly reflects, it's a good description of a lot of what's taking place in our culture. And so they added it to the lexicon. And truthiness is defined in, by the dictionary as a noun. And here's the definition. The quality of seeming to be true according to one's intuition, opinion, or perception without regard to logic, factual evidence, or the like. The growing trend of truthiness as opposed to truth. And the cultural trend continues because in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary declared the word post-truth to be the word of the year. Post-truth, Barna studies, he, in, in reflect, uh, a work that George Barna has done, part of his research, says this, the term post-truth is now often used to describe the current political climate in the United States in which reality is relative and even the facts are open to an interpretation. And so the idea of truthiness and post-truth, while they may have only been recent words, they are important words because they are reflective of the reality that most of us see going on around us. In one sense, it's not a new reality. You have in the past Ernest Hemingway in his 1932 book, Death in the Afternoon, he gave expression that would be a, a, a perfect, um, simple explanation of what truthiness and post-truth is. When he wrote, what is moral is what you feel good after, and what is immoral is what you feel bad after. It's very simple, putting truth depending upon our own instinct, our own preferences, our own feelings. And most scholars are seeing that this has become really quite characteristic of the world in which we live. But the trouble that we have is this, is that when morality and even reality are based on our fickle feelings and emotions, the result is not clarity 
about what is right and wrong, but rather the result is confusion. In fact, it's not only just confusion, but the result is also conflict, which we are seeing all around us in our culture, being divided on the idea of what is right, what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral. I see, and I'm sometimes wearied by conversations that, I, I, that take place online and in person, when people on every side of an argument are claiming the moral upper hand, every side of the argument are claiming that God would be on their side, and that the people who disagree with them are somehow morally questionable. Now, that makes sense, that is, if your position is the moral position, then anybody who disagrees with you would have the immoral position. But the difficulty is the appeal to that seems to be our own experience to justify our own views, whatever they may be, rather than having a particular standard. And as a result, we become not only a morally confused culture, but we are a culture that is in serious conflict. A professor from Stanford University, identifying the culture and something that I wrote, that struck a nerve with me, wrote a few years ago that we are living in a culture that is actually in the midst of somewhat of a civil war. And his rationale for this is that in the past, people would look at a problem and then they would come at it from different perspectives and then try to solve the problem. But in our present culture, his observation is this, that we no longer first look at the problem to solve, but we look at the people who have different opinions than we do about the problem to be solved and believe that they need to be eradicated or shut up before we address the problem at all because there is a problem, but the bigger problem are the people who don't agree with us. And he says, by very virtue of the fact that we see other people who disagree with us as being enemies, Therefore, we are in a sense in a civil war. It's just so far at this point is without the gun and without the violence. And I think we all are able to identify with that. And as I look at things and try to understand perspectives, particularly those who, uh, perspectives that I don't agree with, I'm often just struck not so much with the idea and the intensity of the disagreement, but the hostility that is presented on all sides. We've been consumed by our confusion, and it's propelled us into conflict. And that's what, to me, makes Psalm 7 of pertinence to us today. Psalm 7 was written by a guy who was in the midst of personal angst, conflict, very personal and interpersonal conflict, in the midst of political turmoil. It was written by David the King. Bible scholar John Golden Gay would tell us is that he likely wrote it when his son Absalom was in rebellion against him. And so not only was his political position threatened, but it was being threatened by his very own son. From the evidence that we see in the text, we see David writing about having been accused by someone who was a friend of having betrayed him or done something wrong to him, and perhaps even being accused by those who were his enemies, that he had misappropriated his power and had done something that is beyond the uh, appropriate um, actions, regardless of David's position. We see somebody who is frustrated. We see somebody who is saddened. We see somebody who is in need of clarity. And he shows us how he finds it. Because in Psalm 7, David points us to the righteousness of God. 
Now, righteousness of God is a phrase that is probably familiar to most, if not everybody here. But while it's a phrase that is familiar to most, if not everyone, I suspect that it is also a, a topic which many of us are uh, not comfortable with the depth of our understanding. I mean, we may know that the Bible teaches us about the righteousness of God, but then the question is, well, what does the righteousness of God mean? And why does it matter? Maybe most specifically, the question we should be asking about this topic, about the righteousness of God that David points us to, is how does it affect the way that we live in a morally confused and conflicted culture? And here's what I hope that we'll see this morning, is that we can have moral clarity And we can even have moral courage when our standard of righteousness is rooted upon the righteousness of God. And I hope that we'll see that as we look at this passage through three different angles. They are related. They actually work together. But we're going to look at the reality of God's righteousness, the hope of God's righteousness, and the invitation to God's righteousness. And so we begin with the reality of God's righteousness. See, that's what David is appealing to here. And it's the reality of God's righteousness that enables David to have the moral courage in the face of the circumstances. When he is feeling the brokenness of the relationship, his own, the weight of his own failures as a father that bring the hostility of a son that would not only just separate, but try to do him in to fulfill his own ambitions. We, the, the, the sense of hurt when accused by a friend, going through the process of wondering, did I do something? I don't, I don't think I did that. And, and then even the accusations of an enemy, which don't hurt nearly as much as an accusation of a friend. But you, you see this guy who is in this position and he feeling what many of us feel at different times in our lives and particularly if we find ourselves on different sides of the cultural and social debates from people that we love, whether they are family, friends, or even fellow believers, they, this tension is, is there, and many of us are experiencing it. And David demonstrates all of that, and his focus then points us to the righteousness of God. We, we see that from the very beginning. Uh, oh, Lord, my God, in, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers. He's recognizing that he needs God to be saved. Now, in this process, we, we, we hear him kind of processing, going through and thinking, am I guilty? And he's declaring his own innocence of the accusations. We even see him asking God to judge him according to his own righteousness. We'll pick up on that here in a little while because that's a perplexing thing. But even while he's doing that, the thrust and the basis of all of his appeal here is that David believes that God is righteous. He declares that throughout there, the very end of the passage. He says, I will give to the Lord thanks to the due to his righteousness. Throughout this, he realizes that the basis of his appeal, his only hope, is that God is a righteous God. While that may be evident, though, some of us are still left with the question of, okay, I can acknowledge that God is righteous, but what exactly does that mean? Righteousness is one of those words that we kind of throw around and should be like self-defining, right? We just, nobody wants to ask. 
because we assume everybody else knows, why don't I know? A working definition that I often use is this in terms of righteousness itself, and particularly as it applies to us, is righteousness is right belief that propels us into right action. Both of those components are necessary for righteousness to be, the standard of righteousness to be met according to biblical definition. It requires right belief and right action. So there's a lot of people who do wonderful things, and yet we're told that when we do things and try to present them to God as if somehow he ought to be impressed, they are viewed as offering like filthy rags. On the other hand, there are many people who are quite sound doctrinally, and they don't do a thing. They are dead right. As a friend of mine once said, sadly, they're mostly dead. Because they can pull out all of the doctrines, explain all of them, but there's no righteousness because it has not propelled them to do anything. Biblically speaking, righteousness is always the actions that are propelled by faith. Now, that's as it pertains to us. How does that relate to God? Well, in, in one sense, somewhat trivializing, I think it applies to God as well. Because God, he doesn't learn new things as we do, but his righteousness is a characteristic of his being. And he is filled with full understanding of knowledge of who he is. And that knowledge of who he is also is expressed through the things that he does. See, he's different from us rather than having to come to some belief he already knows. And rather than being propelled, he acts out of his own character, but still we see the same two components. Right understanding, right action, with the same focus for both. Our goal is the glory of God. God's goal is for the glory of God. Not because he is a narcissist who needs to be stroked, but because he is the one in whom any of us find our hope, our salvation, and our satisfaction. But righteousness is an aspect of God's character, part of his nature, just the, the internal standard of right and wrong uh, that God alone has. And the, the word here in Hebrew that's translated in the ESV as righteousness, some places it's translated as faithful, other places as justice. And, and it's not that there's a conflict, that people are confused. Hebrew sometimes can be in general, and what's known by Bible scholars as dynamic equivalence, when you have different words that are used uh, to translate the original language, it's not that they are conflicting with one another, but we look at those words and see where they intersect, and it gives us a more full and more robust understanding of what the word is communicating. And so here the word that is righteousness, which could legitimately be dealt with justice, because that's truth and right that is being expressed and poured out on somebody else. And so with that understanding, the, our imagination should immediately fill up with a picture of a courtroom in which God is like a judge who is seated at, at uh, his bench with an unchangeable, perfect standard of right and wrong continuously administering justice in every circumstance, and his justice is just right in every single situation. And God's righteousness is the highest standard of right and wrong. We have a temptation to look at what God has said in his word and then look at the world or look at our experience and assume God's out of touch. He needs to get on with the times. 
except the God who has created all and knows how things are to work, and he, by his very nature, is righteous, so therefore what he has decreed, what he has expressed, it's the highest standard of righteousness that we could possibly find, and it's a standard that we cannot find within ourselves. Not only are we broken and are we limited, but God's standard of righteousness, his right and wrong, transcends all of our ideas of right and wrong. In other words, we might have understanding and we might be in line with that, but the depths of truth and right and the depths of error and wrong that God understands escape our ability to comprehend. And so we are in need of learning what God says is righteous and right and wrong. And God graciously expresses that to us by giving us his law that says, Here's how we're to live. Here's the things that we ought to avoid. And we are given an opportunity when we are confronted with God's law to obey. And in our obedience, it's an opportunity for us to imitate God's righteousness. In other words, God, by his very character, we are able to do what God would call us to do. In that way, we are imitating. But it's important we understand that as good as imitation is, and certainly it's better to imitate that which is good than to imitate something that is bad. But if we are to obey the word, and if we are to, uh, uh, to imitate God's righteousness through our, our obedience, we need to recognize that we're still imitating. Imitation doesn't make us fully that which we are imitating. It shapes our practices, it develops habits, can send us in the right direction, but at least we are not God, we never will be, but we are called for godliness. As I was thinking about that distinction this week, it was, I had fond memories thinking back to childhood, as also as summer's coming, where I would spend my summers in friends' backyard uh, playing uh, baseball, and there were usually four or five, six of us we would play and relatively scaled back backyard. Uh, sometimes we would play with plastic golf balls and a wiffle ball bat, which made it a little bit more challenging. But one thing that was consistent is that we knew all the major league teams and we knew all their lineups. And so whatever team you chose to represent, you had to bat like their batting order, whatever it was. Now, I'm old enough that this was the time of the big red machine in Cincinnati Reds, even though I grew up in Philadelphia. Had to be difficult at the point, and so, uh, and so as we were the Reds, and I was just thinking back, and so you, when we, if you were the representative of the Reds, you had to bat like them. So the first batter in the lineup for the Reds was Pete Rose, and so you had to squat down in a way that would be painful on your thighs, and whether that was comfortable for you or natural for you or not, you had to be Pete Rose. And if the guy pitching was, uh, was a right-hander, then you had to bat left-handed because Pete Rose was a switch hitter. <laughs> Next up is Joe Morgan. Now, most of you who may don't know who he is, and you certainly don't know anything distinctive about it, but you who people who are old like me may remember that Joe Morgan had a very distinctive batting stance. It wasn't so much in the way that he stood, but he had this way. He would hold his bat up, and he would just flap his arm and, you know, as if he was about to take off and fly. And so, you know, you get up, and I did an incredible imitation of Joe Morgan. And you had Johnny Bench and whatever. But you know what really struck me is that in all of the imitation, and as good of an imitator as I was, I never became Pete Rose. I never became Joe Morgan. So I was able to imitate them, and some of that probably was helpful in my own Little League Baseball career, which ended in about eighth grade, but that's a whole other issue. Um, the years that didn't happen are those of the best ones because it's all in my imagination. <laughs> but see, we get into trouble when we imitate 
that which is good and somehow think it makes us that which we are imitating. As opposed to being thankful for the benefits that we have, that God has enabled us and directed us in being good, we become what everyone rejects, everybody knows is obnoxious, self-righteous. Because we begin marking those things that we do and then forgetting the things that we don't do or forgetting the things that we do that nobody likes and that even God has said that we oughtn't do. We recognize that the, that the righteousness of God is a standard and we need to see God, but in seeing God, we see his righteous standard. And it's God's righteous standard that David bases his appeal. Because the reality of God's righteousness is good news for him and for you and for me. Because we serve a God who is righteous to the core. He never changes. He's never confused. And he is absolutely good. Now, think about that reality as it relates to the difficult circumstances that you may find yourself in. Even facing evil, which David is claiming that he is facing. When people are gossiping about you or maybe even flat out lying about you and the pain, and the hurt, and, and just no way of seeing how that you'll correct that. And, and when those who should bring justice are, and the ju judicial system itself seems inadequate, inept, or corrupt, and is not likely to bring about justice, that's where David felt himself in this psalm. And we are invited to do what David does, is we can claim the reality of God's righteousness to calm our souls. But even as I say that, I also need to acknowledge this, the knowledge of the righteousness of God. In other words, simply knowing the reality that God is righteous does not automatically help us. And it's important that we see that here because otherwise I'm giving you pious counsel that some of you will be able to accept in healthy ways and a lot of us will just it just be piled on more information that we, we can't process and we don't benefit from. But understand this, the reality of God's righteousness does not automatically help us. And I say that because David clearly knows that God is righteous. He says so throughout this particular psalm. And yet he's still feeling frustrated. He's still feeling anxious. He's still feeling helpless, which is particularly amazing when we consider that David was the king. David is the giant slayer that everybody knew of his place. And we have neither of those attributes. So how much more helpless and how much more frustrated are we likely to feel when we face the frustrations or face difficult times? we also see with David here is not just affirming the reality of the righteousness of God, but we see secondly the hope of God's righteousness. So the reality of God's righteousness always points us to the hope of God's righteousness. Simply knowing that God is righteous, that's a good foundation, but we need to be appropriating the implications of that righteousness if it's going to bring us comfort. And we see David doing that as the way he's not only just unburdening himself by going to God and talking about the circumstance that he is in and giving details about that. And we see him wrestling with not only saying, here's what's going on, but here's how I'm feeling about this. We see also David, rather than seeking vengeance, 
or acting out in frustration, taking justice on himself, which would be very easy for him to do. He is, after all, the king, so he has the right, or he could declare himself to have the right to do whatever he thought was right in his own eyes. But rather, what we see is something that is really quite amazing. It's somebody who is resting in the hope of God's righteousness. Because we see in verse 1, he says, O Lord, save me. And he talks a little bit more about the particular circumstance. But what I find particularly interesting, instead of praying for everything just to go away, instead of praying for the Lord to wipe out the people who are annoying him, who are hurting him, frustrating him, David prays in verse 6 just for God to arise. In other words, David is doing something that we sometimes, maybe I'm just including you because I want to feel like I'm not the only one who acts foolishly and unspiritually. But often I worry in God's direction. I whine in God's direction. And I want God to alleviate whatever it is my problem but I lose sight of the fact that God has raised up every circumstance so that he may be glorified and I might be reminded to rest in his righteousness, to have my hope in his righteousness. And I find it interesting that David, even though he's very pointed here, and as the king has a right to take out justice, and even as we look at other psalms in, in the scriptures that are known as the imprecatory psalms, other ones that are saying, God, go sick them, go get them. That's, that's the technical word for those. David doesn't really ever get there in this psalm. He's rather resting in the fact that God is righteous. And then look at the appeal that David makes in verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteousness, the, the righteous. See, what I find particularly interesting, he's saying, let the evil of the wicked. He's not personalizing this. He is dealing with the circumstance. He's not saying, this person has done me wrong. Wipe him out. David's prayer is for God to somehow do what God does and to eliminate evil. Now, sometimes that does come with people experiencing judgment, but this is not David's prayer. And it's also important for us to recognize we can also pray, but the fact that he doesn't pray to wipe them out is somebody who's willing to rest in the hope that God's righteousness is sufficient for him to calm his soul and for a right to be established. And that's the second part of his prayer. Whoops. It was going to be a great point. Now, um, essentially, he's saying, lead us not, deliver us from evil. Establish the righteous, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sound familiar? I mean, it's, it's really David in his own way in his own words, through his own circumstances, is praying the very thing that Jesus came along and taught us to pray, which is a confidence that God will get it right. Even when we are in a position emotionally, mentally, uh, relationally, that we might be in the right, but we're not in a position to be making emotional decisions in the way of what is just and what is unjust. David is simply saying, Evil is evil. Lord, you are righteous. Do away with the evil that is coming from the wicked. And he goes on and he describes this. And we see the intensity and the anger coming out towards the end of, of the psalm. So it's not that he's not there. He's not just saying, no, what should I say that would be an appropriate prayer? He's pouring himself out, but he is committed to the hope that God's righteousness is sufficient for him. 
he's aware of something that we sometimes need to be aware of because the tendency of many of our lives is that we want to also execute what justice is. When I was thinking about David's prayer this week, I was, came to mind the, um, Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. I believe it's the character Shylock who was reminded over and over again about the whole idea of taking vengeance or the, the pound of flesh. And when he is confronted with that, he's confronted with a warning. You deserve recompense. And so you want to take your pound of flesh? That's, that will be justice. If you take an ounce more, it is no longer justice. And you deserve the punishment that you believe that should be inflicted upon the other people. So Shakespeare tapped into something that I think David is reflecting, even if it wasn't conscious there, is that we don't know the depths of what is right. We are not always privy to all of the details. And so righteousness happens when we are willing to rest in the fact that God, who is righteous, will prevail and do things just right. Can you imagine what your prayers would be like if you, if I, were to set our hopes on God's righteousness? Maybe you don't feel that you have the words. Maybe you can be emotional. Psalm 7 is not only about the, righteous, the reality of the righteousness of God. It's not only about the hope of the righteousness of God. Psalm 7 is an invitation to us in a lot of ways. And one, it's an invitation for us to pray, and Psalm 7 is it becomes a template for us because it shows us how we may be able to engage in a way that is freeing and redemptive and God-honoring at the same time. It's an invitation to pray as David is praying about whatever circumstances are evil that you see in your life or you see in the world that is around you or uh, wherever it is that you may be seeing evil and to be lifting that up and asking God to destroy evil, but not necessarily the people who are captured by it. It's an opportunity to pray for the Lord to establish righteousness, to do what is right, and that would be the standard of the earth. And the idea that we're invited to pray, Charles Spurgeon, in a, just talking about Psalms, not this one in particular, but it was, but it is pertinent to this. He captures the essence of what this shift of hope, resting in the hope of God's righteousness does. He says, what a blessing it would be if we could turn the most disastrous events into the theme of a song or a prayer. And so to turn the tables on our great enemy. So this is an invitation to rest in the hope that God who is righteous will work things out the way they need to, that not only will ultimately and even immediately eliminate evil, but also to establish righteousness and sometimes God will use the circumstances to turn the tables. But the invitation goes even further and it's really that we need to understand because I understand that some of you probably have a, may have a problem, those of you who are thinking, those of you who are more aware of the Bible, uh, might be thinking about David and saying, who is David that he's going to offer a prayer like this? Especially one who, as we see in, in uh, verse, um, uh, lost my verse here. Um, uh, well, uh, 
verse 10, I think it is, or no. Yeah, well, I'm not going to look at this point. But David, who is saying, God, judge me according to my righteousness and according to my integrity. In one sense, it sounds like he's standing on his own record. Those of you who are students of the Bible, you know that David, while he's claiming innocence in this particular circumstance, his life is filled with things that are clearly not innocence. His life is messed up. He's done some horrendous things. Part of the things he's experienced are consequences for the things that he had done as a failure as a father, um, mistakes as a king, personal. His sins are coming back in one sense to revisit him in, in the form of this hostility. And so who is David to be offering a prayer like this? I mean, David himself is aware. I mean, if you were to flip a few chapters later in Psalm 14, David says, no one does what is good, none. And David seems to understand that the wages of sin is death because he says, look, if I'm guilty, let my enemy come and destroy me. He knows that if he is guilty, he deserves death. That's what we deserve for our sin. So he's fully aware of that, and yet he has the audacity to lift up this kind of prayer. How would he possibly do that? To understand that, we need to understand the backdrop of the faith that David had that is not only his, but is ours and all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to understand that, we need to go back to the book of Genesis into chapter 15. You don't need to turn there. But understanding that God entered into a covenant relationship with a man named Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham. And in that covenant, God said to him, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will obey what I commanded and I will provide and I will deliver. I will do everything. And then the promise was, and I will make your name great because I'm going to bless all the nations through you. The ultimate aspect of that promise was because it was through that line that Jesus would be born. But what is significant about that covenant that we read is that when God first called Abram, and he says, I want you to go someplace. So he said, Abram asked, where am I going? And God says, I'll let you know when you get there. And to leave his people, he called a person out of a pagan family in a pagan culture, not because he'd achieved or he was seeking after anything, because God chose him made these promises to him, and we are told that Abram believed God, and it was therefore credited to him as righteousness. In other words, simply by believing in the hope and promise of God, Abram was declared righteous. And if you know anything about Abram, he may have been more messed up than David. Despite God's promises and all that God has shown him, he was still fearful. One time he was fearful. He trafficked his own wife or his own comfort and his own safety. I mean, these are not good things. He would take matters into his own hands and mess things up. A lot of the problems we have in the world today are as a result of the fact that he thought that he could handle it. I mean, this was a messed up guy, and yet he believed God, and he was declared, credited as being righteous. And David understands that the nature of the relationship that anyone who believes God and the promises of God is by virtue of believing, of faith, credited as being righteous. Because we are now given the record of the account of God himself, or in particularly God in the person of Jesus Christ. The righteousness with which David is approaching God is not, I've done all these good things, so I've, welled, I've got my account, so I can, I'm worthwhile. But even with his flaws, even with his brokenness, even though even in his rightness there was certainly some level of wrongness and error in him, he is a righteous man who can approach God on the basis of God's grace, who counts his faith in God as 
being righteous. And that is an invitation for you and for me as we look at the psalm to also believe into that same promise. Because the scriptures tell us Jesus is our righteousness. What that means is he has done everything necessary. And as we're trusting in him, we then are credited as being righteous. And therefore being credited as righteous, we are able to approach God, trust God, rest in God, and believe that God will be at work in our circumstances and through us in the lives of other people. It is a beautiful invitation that we have that is here for us today. And in this invitation, it is not only an invitation to believe, but then also to be vessels of interaction, to turn the tables on the great enemy, to see God's will on earth to be done, not just from our obedience, but more first our believing, which propels us into action, which then becomes a reflection of God's righteousness for others to see, that they may also believe and be invited to believe. People of God that are frustrated of your circumstances, that you feel that you are not able to go to God and be so bold, you have the right because God has invited you as an expression of his righteousness to rest in the hope of the reality of our righteous God. And my prayer for us is this, that we would be a people who have as our standard the righteousness of God so that we can live with moral clarity, moral confidence, and graciousness in a morally confused and conflicted world. Father, root us in the reality of your righteousness and in the covenant that you have made with those who are the heirs of Abraham that we may rest in the reality and the hope of your righteousness and all that it promises. Free us. Correct us. Empower us. Bear fruit through us, we pray in Christ. Amen.